This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Welcome back, everyone, to World to Win. So sorry about last week. We had to take a week off. We had lots of important things that we had to get done. Organizing, socialism, you know the deal. But we're back this week with a very exciting episode. I want to welcome all of our new subscribers And I also want to remind everyone that World to Win can now be um, listened to through podcasts. So, of course, you can watch us every week on YouTube, but also wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether it's Apple, Spotify, whatever, you can find us there. Also, last time we mentioned that we have our sister show, Mundo Por Ganar, um, and it's produced by International Socialist Alternative Comrades in Latin America. So, ask click in a link por debajo y vea el último episodio con compañeros de Brasil y de México discutiendo las elecciones recientes en Perú y Ecuador. Excuse me for my rusty Spanish, but I want to make sure everybody um, downloads our Spanish version of World to Win. So this week, we have an episode where we're placing focus back on the pandemic because as we're seeing, um, you know, in different parts of the world, uh, COVID is not over, even though we have vaccines. And so we want to dive deeper into what's going on there, um, you know, focusing on the failures of capitalism to really deal with this uh, human emergency that we have. Um, so in our show today, we're going to be talking about two places in particular. We're going to be talking about India, and we're also going to be talking about Latin America. So I have Andre with us here today. Andre, how's it going? Yeah, I'm fine. Good to be here. Great. It's so good to see you, and I'm glad you could join us again. It's been a while. Um, so I want to start uh, talking about um, the situation that we see in Brazil. So as you can see, Andre, I'm wearing my LSR shirt, which is what we're called in Brazil, uh, Libertade, Socialismo e Revolucional. I've been practicing my Portuguese just for you. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about, in Brazil specifically, how um, Bolsonaro has been handling the pandemic? I, you know, I've been reading that the way that we're describing it is um, as genocidal. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what we mean by that? Yeah. Well, uh, in, in fact, Toya, uh, the criminal way Bolsonaro handled the pandemic was uh, was terrific. It was has worsened the scenario here. It was not inevitable that we would have more than uh, 400,000 dead, an average of between two and 3,000 dead per day for months and a total collapse of the hospital system here. There is no doubt that is a genocidal policy from the government. But you know, uh, we need some caution here when using the term genocidal uh, in Brazil concerning Bolsonaro. You know that several people have been uh, indicated uh, or even charged under the national security law which is an authoritarian legacy left by the military dictatorship in Brazil, for calling the president a genocidal. For example, there is an activist called Rodrigo Pilha. He has been imprisoned in Brasilia since uh, 18th of March for having opened a banner in front of the presidential policy reading Bolsonaro genocidal. So he has suffered all kinds of violence in, in prison, from far-right uh, fascist police officers 
And also we have a situation where, for example, indigenous leader Sonia Guajajara and the PSOL, the Party for Socialism and Freedom uh, leader, Guilherme Boulos, were uh, also uh, summoned to testify at the federal police due to her denunciations against the practice of genocide on indigenous people uh, and their opposition to Bolsonaro. So the former um, candidate for mayor in Sao Paulo, Guilherme Boulos, had to go to the federal police and is under attack by the government. But we are not afraid of that. So faced with these threats, millions of people have uh, uh, reproduced on social media, on posters, uh, um, banners, etc., say, and I repeat here with all the letters, Bolsonaro is a genocidal. And in good and clear Portuguese, Bolsonaro é um genocida. And uh, why can we say that without fear of exaggeration? It's because Bolsonaro deliberately uh, let the pandemic spread. It was not just incompetence of, or uh, ineptitude. There was a vision behind it that the pandemic would dissipate quickly with the logic of uh, herd immunization and the dead along the way would be a natural process that should be accepted by all. So a few days ago, a parliamentary commission of inquiry was installed in the Senate to deal with the government handle of the pandemic, and the government's reaction was uh, of panic, uh, bordering on desperation in reality. So the senators who proposed the commission uh, rising pre preliminary 18 accusations against the government concerning the pandemic. So the most interesting thing is that the press had access uh, to an internal government report in preparation for the parliamentary commission where the government listed 23 possible accusations. So in other words, the additional five charges were incorporated by the commission by the indirect suggestion of the, the government itself. So what we are talking about, we are talking about the Bolsonaro denying it, the seriousness of the pandemic from the beginning and he consciously sabotaged measures to address it. For example, he refused to buy 70 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine and attacked the Chinese Sinovac vaccine produ produced in Sao Paulo. He ostensibly uh, fought every measure of social isolation and lockdown, etc. The government was criminally negligent over the lack of hospital oxygen in Manaus, in the city of Manaus, and the supply of intubation uh, suppliers in various parts of, of the country. The government spent millions of reais on, on hydroxychloroquine, for example, and other useless and dangerous medicines. Uh, but at the same time, it has not passed on the resources needed to the state government to confront the pandemic. So people uh, uh, specialized on pandemics, etc., were replaced in the health minister by incompetent military people, starting with the minister himself. There was no national coordination to combat the pandemic, causing widespread chaos throughout the country. So it can be said that hundreds of thousands of deaths result from the deliberate and conscious policy of Bolsonaro and the current economic and political system also in the country. I mean, yeah, using this word genocide, it has a lot of weight to it. But what you're describing, um, you know, this deliberate 
um, negligence is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, and you know, the whole, the whole nonsense around the vaccine and not, um, you know, purchasing the vaccine when it became available. Um, it's just, it's, it's disgusting is what it is. Um, but in the earlier phase of the pandemic, we saw divisions between Bolsonaro and some state governors, um, you know, who were from the traditional uh, right wing. And now more recently, we saw important resignations from military figures in the government. Um, so, you know, is the, the, the what you're describing as a criminal COVID policy finally starting to threaten uh, the position that Bolsonaro has created for himself? Yes, I think it is. Uh, the criminal posture of the government is sufficient to characterize the crime of responsibility. That is the prerequisite for impeachment, for example. In fact, there are already more than 100 requests for impeachment uh, filled in the Chamber of Deputies in the House of Rep Representatives here. It turns out that the, the, the bourgeois opposition to Bolsonaro, the traditional right wing that today opposes him, including state governors such as Sao Paulo state government, João Doria and others, uh, but they do not really want at this moment overthrow Bolsonaro, at least now. So uh, uh, they, what they want is to work Bolsonaro down to, to have uh, a room, space for to build an electoral alternative uh, more uh, linked with them in the 2022 elections. About the military, uh, in fact, during the pandemic, the government's criminal posture uh, was led by a health minister who was an active uh, general of the army, Gen General Pazuello, who we prefer to call him General Pesadelo. Pesadelo in Portuguese means nightmare, so General Nightmare, in fact. So the, this, this man in this uh, position uh, uh, provoked an enormous problems for the armed forces and even to some degree a division among them about the level of commitment they should have to Bolsonaro's genocidal attitude. So Bolsonaro had to replace Pazuello after uh, some of the country's leading bankers and other capitalists made an open letter demanding a change in Bolsonaro's stance on vaccines, for example. But at the same time, Bolsonaro demanded from the military command an aggressive posture uh, of pressure on other institutions, for example, uh, in particular, the judiciary, the, the Supreme Court. So they, they, Bolsonaro wanted to pressure the Supreme Court using the military command. So, however, the commanders of the army, the navy and the air force refused to act, act, to act as Bolsonaro wanted. So, in particularly uh, uh, about the lockdown, uh, uh, against the lockdown in the in Brasilia, in the Distrito Federal, in the federal district, the capital of the country. And for the first time in history, all the commanders of the forces were replaced at the same time, along with other ministers who, who also fell. So today, uh, more military personnel criticize Bolsonaro and others who follow a, a policy of seeking uh, to control and, 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 and try to use the president. So there are some more divisions among the military uh, uh, forces here in Brazil. So the episode showed that there is no, at this moment, a relation of forces 
for a kind of a coup d'etat initiative by Bolsonaro. He, he doesn't have the, the force for that at this time. Although a coup adventure is not off of the radar at the some point by, by Bolsonaro, but uh, uh, he will not leave uh, uh, office, for example, to leave the, the, the presidency uh, unresisted, not even if he loses the election. So something he will try. But at this moment, there is no relation of forces for that. So this episode has also shown that the inter-bourgeois divisions continue to exist and deepen uh, uh, in, in this moment. So what is really needed uh, at this moment is a mass movement of the workers for a clear uh, uh, forces to defeat Bolsonaro. But if it depends on the bourgeois opposition, the government will not fall. Uh, we need to take into our hands the task of overthrowing this government as a matter of uh, uh, health emergency to save lives in reality. So what you've described with kind of the situation in the military and with the, um, you know, the, the, the politicians is extremely interesting. But I'm wondering now if we can switch to, uh, you know, more of uh, the working class struggle. Is the virus really pushing people into the streets to build these movements that you're talking about um, are so desperately needed? Yes, so this is this is a critical issue in reality. We 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 have had some fragmented mobilization of different sectors of workers here. For example, just to give an example, we have we are in the middle uh, right now uh, of a 80-day strike of education workers in the city of São Paulo, in which we, our organization LSR, have acted uh, strongly in this in this demonstration uh, early. Uh, 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 or at the end of last week, in, in reality, we, we had a comrade, a teacher comrade, uh, was uh, arrested and assaulted by, a, by the police in a, in a strike activity. It's a very important uh, struggle at this moment. But it, it is a little bit isolated and there is no a general movement in general. We have other sectors struggling. For example, we have the LG company workers in a strike in defense of their jobs. Uh, the company will close the doors in the next period, so there, there is a strike also involving other uh, companies around LG uh, in, in, in Sao Paulo. Also, we have a struggle of public sector workers against the administrative uh, counter-reform that the government is trying to approve in the Congress. But all these struggles are uh, fragmented. They are not uh, united in one movement organized by the workers' organization. Uh, we have a situation now in Brazil where we have uh, 125 million people suffering from food insecurity. So there is a brutal social regression in the country and uh, there is a day-to-day -day struggle for survive uh, in general. So, and I think that if we add this drama of the deaths counted by the thousands every day because of the pandemic uh, and together with this social regression uh, there is th this potential anger and social commotion uh, uh, can explode at any time and if this happens we will have the effect of a social and political atomic bomb in reality in the country but the thing is that this has not happened yet 
We don't have now in Brazil a situation like Colombia, for example, that had a very strong mass struggle against uh, the Ivan Duque government and, uh, and the, the, the new attacks of the government. And also in Chile in, in recent days, we don't have this situation at this moment in Brazil. Obviously, this is related to the, 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 the situation of the pandemic. The seriousness of the pandemic is a factor that limits mobilization. There is no doubt about that. The number of, for example, the, the, the number of young people killed by COVID-19 since January has grown by more than a thousand and the spread of the disease is dramatic. So there is there is a fear about what can happen in, in mass demonstrations, etc. But there is also a central political problem here. So the leadership of the workers' movement is also betting on an electoral way out of the crisis for the 2022 elections. And they fear uh, that the turbulence that the process of struggles could generate in the country. This has been reinforced by the democratic victory. It was a democratic victory that was the restitution of the political rights for Lula, the leaders of the Workers' Party, the PT, uh, by the Supreme Court. So uh, at this moment, according to the polls, Lula uh, from the Workers' Party would beat Bolsonaro in the elections. So uh, despite the crisis of the PT, and, 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 and the movement around, around Lula of the last period, in the face of Bolsonaro, Lula appears as a kind of, uh, for, for many people, a kind of uh, savior of the homeland or something like that. So the only uh, hope uh, people have because they don't, they don't uh, uh, trust in, in the possibility of a mass struggle to overthrow Bolsonaro at this moment. So the strategy of the PT today is to convince sectors of the bourgeoisie that they win more with Lula than with Bolsonaro. So they are trying to win some sectors of the bourgeoisie for their side. So in this context, uh, the, uh, the leadership of the PT think that they are not uh, interested in a process of radicalization of the social struggle, which results in the overthrow of Bolsonaro. So, so that is a real political problem for the mass movement. And we think that this position is a serious mistake and we should have another position and, and uh, organize the struggle at this moment. So, I mean, it might be even difficult for people to understand because Bolsonaro is, um, you know, uh, uh, purposefully not doing what's necessary to address the issues of the pandemic, the issues of hunger, like you've described. Um, and so, like you're saying, Lula can be looked at as a savior, but why do you say that that isn't the direction that the movement needs to go in? What does, um, you know, LSR, the International Socialist Alternative in Brazil, um, say the direction should be? Well, we, we think that this position of the leadership of BT and Lula himself is, is a big problem. Uh, they cannot defend, uh, support this position openly, but we see this. For example, in the May Day uh, online virtual demonstrations we had some days ago, there was a clear uh, 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 policy of trying to, to bring some bourgeois politicians to participate in May Day and also trying to, to prove to the bourgeoisie that the PT will not be a problem for them. So this is the main position they had. And we, we think that this position is a serious mistake in the first place because we cannot wait for October 2022. How many thousands 
more will die because of Bolsonaro. We must fight to overthrow Bolsonaro now. Lula should be using his authority among the workers to call for the struggle, but he's not doing that. Uh, and, and secondly, there is no guarantee that we will have a truly democratic electoral process in 2022. Uh, we, we, we had the experience of 2018 elections when the PT did the same thing, but Lula was arrested and they opened the bourgeoisie, opened the way for the victory of Bolsonaro. We don't have any guarantee that we don't have any kind of, uh, of uh, maneuver like this until the elections. So, so it's, it's a mistake not to put the emphasis on the struggles, etc. But beyond this, uh, we also have a problem that the Lula's program uh, and the positions, the platform that Lula is building now is obviously much better than what Bolsonaro is doing but continues to be based on the idea of class conciliation, on collaboration with the bourgeoisie, etc. So in Brazil, in fact, any measure that advances the rights and the interests of the working class will have to break with the logic of the crisis of capitalism. So this is why we in LSR stand for a program uh, of an anti-capitalist and socialist character and we understand that this program must be rising in the struggles right now, but also in the elections. So this is a discussion, this is a debate also inside the PSO, the part of socialism and, and, and freedom, that we, we work inside the PSO also, the, what, which is an, a broader left party, uh, much more left uh, wing than the PT. But inside the PSO, that we will have a, a Congress this year, we, we are raising the necessity to, to defend this program in the struggles, but also in the elections, and not simply say that the PSO is also supporting Lula. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, we need to build an alternative also in this process. Evidently, we are in favor of a critical vote for Lula, against Bolsonaro in the second round or, or, or in a situation like that. But the task now is to prepare the struggles and rise a program that allow us to get out of the terrible crisis we are living through, to overthrow Bolsonaro and the system that created him. We think, Toya, that in the second half of the year, the second semester, the situation will be better in terms of struggles. There are plans for mass struggles in the second semester where we expect that the situation of the pandemic will not be the same as uh, today. And we think that uh, uh, we will have a new scenario in the country in the context and our organization is preparing itself for this situation. And we think that is the task of the whole uh, socialist left in Brazil at this moment. Thank you so much, Andre, for coming on today. This situation is extremely complex, but you know, uh, having this discussion with you, I feel uh, you know a, a lot more in touch with what's going on in Brazil. Um, and I will be waiting for your update to come back and let us know um, how the struggle is going, what's going on in Pasol, um, you know, the uh, election, re-election possibly of Bolsonaro, or maybe um, someone new coming in. And so, I want to thank you again, as always, for coming on our show today. Next up, we are going to hear um, about 
India, which right now is the epicenter of the COVID, COVID pandemic. Um, and I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Yara. Thank you, Toya. And hi, JJ, how are you doing? Hi, Yara, I'm good, good. So India suffered massively from COVID-19. And, you know, the country, the country's recorded 19 million cases of COVID overall, which is an incredible number. It's second only to the US. But while the US is getting vaccinated rapidly, even in comparison to other countries, India is far, far, far behind. And it's barely getting any vaccines. And also it's seeing a high number of deaths and high number of new cases constantly. Um, It was the first country to see more than 400,000 new cases in a day, which again, this number is incomprehensible but also a death rate of over uh, 3,500 per day. So we're seeing hospitals failing, uh, obviously not for lack of trying from medical professionals and healthcare professionals, but also because of the chronic shortage of equipment, of beds, even medical oxygen. And low testing rates also mean that the figure that we have Uh, of 215,000 deaths is probably far lower than the real death toll because um, mainly people are dying at home, especially in rural areas. So obviously it's all shocking and we're all kind of appalled by this horrendous situation. And JJ, you're actually in India at the moment. So I was wondering, what does it feel like, like there right now? Well, I mean, there's no question that's you know, India is going at the moment through a, a disaster of truly epic proportions. If you actually look on a graph, the spike in infection cases and death is, you know, so brutal that it's almost vertical. It's not, it's not a wave anymore. It's like a, a wall, you know. Uh, and of course, as you indicated, it's, it's just based on the official figures, which nobody believes to even be, you know, remotely accurate. Uh, just to give an example, uh, an employee in a local hospital in Jaipur, which is a city in the northwest in the, in the state of Rajasthan, reported that there were more than 150 deaths in his hospital uh, on a daily uh, basis. But according to government data, there are only seven to death, seven to ten deaths per day in the entire city. And this is not an isolated exa- example. It's like you know, it's like this across the country, and it's even worse uh, as you indicated in the rural areas where there is hardly any testing and medical facilities and where many deaths uh, go unreported, even in normal times, let alone uh, in times like, uh, like now. Uh, a modeling done by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington suggested that considering the level of underdiagnosis and under-testing in India, the actual level of infections could be 50 time, 58 times higher than what is reported. And unofficial estimates and projections, you know, based on information collected by journalists, uh, reports from frontline workers, etc., put the actual daily death rate due to COVID at 8, 10, 20, up to 30 times higher than the official count. I mean, it's, it's very simple here, you know, pretty much everybody uh, knows people who have died from the, from the virus. And following the news here is, you know, it's, it's an endless catalog of harrowing stories. You have, you know, families cremating their dead relatives on the streets because crematoriums are full or, you know, traveling hundreds of miles to find a hospital bed uh, after having been turned away repeatedly from all hospitals around. Uh, dead bodies carried on motorbikes or on uh, rickshaws because there is no ambulance available. Uh, desperate people taking on debts or selling the few possessions they have to uh, afford oxygen tanks, which prices have exploded on the black market. Uh, because, you know, as, 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 as if people's suffering was not enough already, there's a huge amount of, you know, pandemic profiteering going on as well. 
I mean, it's like a textbook case of, of disaster capitalism with, you know, the stocks of oxygen-making companies climbing through the roofs, uh, operators of private ambulances and mortuary vans charging double or triple their normal rates. And obviously, it's also the private vaccine manufacturers themselves who have been rolled the red carpet by Modi and his government and are expected to make billions in profit out of this uh, devastation. One silver lining I would stress, though, is that, you know, while this crisis has exposed once again, you know, the true ugly face of capitalism, it has also brought to the fore the incredible dedication and heroism from uh, frontline front workers, as well as, you know, the many small acts of solidarity from ordinary people who, in the total absence of government help and planning, and in the midst of a collapsing health system, have, you know, stepped in in so many different ways to help each other, uh, improvising helplines, uh, supporting networks, uh, informal channels to transport the sick to hospitals, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think it's it's like it it's un kind of imaginable what's happening in India right now. I think also obviously coming from a very small country, and even you know in a bigger country like the UK, the numbers and the size of the country is just so incredible, and the fact that there's so many people who actually have uh, not just got the, not just got COVID, but actually die from it is just unbelievable. And you know, when you put it in the context of the the fight, the international fight against COVID, th- this is like a breeding ground for new variants. It's a breeding ground for uh, problems that can, like, you know, not only impact India, even though obviously, <laughs> even if it just impacted India, it would be bad enough, but it can mean like actual devastation for the world. And I think putting in the context of the fact that India is actually one of the biggest producers of pharmaceuticals, and I think it's the biggest uh, producer of vaccines in the world, but at the same time, it was so brutally hit by COVID. And at the same time, they're not getting enough vaccines. So how is it possible that they're making the vaccines, but they're not actually getting them? Well, I think there is, you know, there is a combination of factors involved in, you know, having produced a sort of perfect storm in India at the moment. But I think it, it goes beyond the question of the vaccine, you know, of, of the vaccination in and of itself. And I think it's important to kind of set up the background to all of this as well. I mean, first of all, India's public healthcare system has been dilapidated for many decades. I think that's an important point to uh, consider because even though much can be attributed to the abject failure of the current, you know, right-wing BJP government. It's not only this government. Millions of people are now reaping the fruits of many years of sheer uh, neglect, of privatization, of neoliberal cuts in what was already, uh, you know, a completely rickety and underfunded uh, sector. So, of course, you know, opposition parties like the Congress Party, who has been in power before the BJP, shouldn't be left off the hook because, from that perspective, they are uh, co-responsible for the situation. Then there is, of course, the particularly criminal recklessness of Modi and the BJP uh, itself. I mean, despite the fact that many scientists, virologists, epidemiologists, etc., had warned of a second wave, the government did, you know, close to nothing after the first wave to uh, fortify the medical infrastructure and enhance the, you know, the stocks of oxygen, of drugs, of ICU beds, of ventilators, etc., which means no, you know, that now there is like a dire shortage of all of these things. I mean, the official line was that India had brought the pandemic under control and Modi's government had done an extraordinary uh, job. So uh, on February the 21st, for example, the the BJP passed a resolution declaring India victorious in the fight against COVID under, I quote, the able, sensible, committed and visionary leadership of Prime Minister Sri Narendra Modi. On March the 7th, the health minister declared that the country was in the end game of COVID. 
So they were, you know, they were basically already driving straight into a catastrophe with their eyes uh, closed, let alone, you know, talking about the, the vaccine. Uh, and it's actually more than that. They, they played also you know, a very proactive role in spreading the virus all around, not unlike Trump in the US last year. Uh, Modi and the BJP leaders authorized and even encouraged, you know, super spreader events, allowing enormous religious festivals and crowded sporting competitions to go ahead, but also traveling themselves across the country to massive electoral rallies, refusing to wear masks or to enforce social distancing protocols in the context of the recent regional state elections, etc. Now, uh, coming to the, the vaccine issue. India is indeed, you know, often called the, the, the pharmacy of the world because it provides more than 60% of the world's vaccines. But as I speak, it has only fully inoculated from COVID-19 about 2% only of its own population. And why is that? I mean, the short and simple answer is because vaccine production, both in India itself and on the world scale, is owned and driven by private corporate interests. I mean, in India, production relies on two manufacturers, uh, Bharat Biotech and the Serum Institute of India. Uh, uh, um, whose CEO a couple of weeks ago shamelessly complained that they were only making profits from the vaccine sales to the central government and not super profits. And in mid-April, uh, Modi announced a new scheme that liberalized and regionalizes the prices of 50% of the vaccines produced in India, which means the regional states and private providers have to now organize their own procurement you know, with the manufacturers themselves at a much higher price than those initially negotiated by the central government. This means that instead of organizing a vaccination drive that is based on the actual health priorities, this system, number one, pits the various states against each other for vaccine access, which is also a way for the central government you know, to deflect the blame towards the state's government and away from itself. But most importantly, number two, allows the vaccine companies to make a killing from this disaster and de facto price out of the COVID-19 vaccine uh, millions of poor and working class people over whom in many cases the higher cost of the job is being uh, transferred. So instead of ensuring an equitable, free, speedy vaccination campaign that puts, you know, really people's health and lives at the core of its strategy, which, you know, the democratically planned and publicly controlled approach that socialists argue for would do, uh, the government in India has put the management of this pandemic at the mercy of the profits of these corporations. And then, of course, to top it all, uh, you know, there is the international angle, which uh, we should, of course, not uh, forget. I mean, for the leaders of Western imperialist powers, blaming everything on a domestic mishandling of the crisis is also extremely convenient because they have themselves blood on their hands. These governments are holding, uh, holding millions of unused vaccine doses, and in order to protect the profits of their own pharma industry, they are also hoarding production capacities. So they have systematically torpedoed the efforts of many countries of the global south, including India, to suspend intellectual property restrictions, uh, to suspend uh, patents, which would allow to massively you know, boost vaccine production and distribution uh, globally. So it's all of these factors put together that have contributed to the scale of this uh, disaster. And as you indicated, with the proliferation now of new, dangerous, more infectious, and even immune-resistant variants. It's a problem, of course, that, uh, you know, global implications as well. Yeah, I think, I think it's so true what you're saying about kind of how it's very convenient for all the governments around the world to kind of point at each other and say, oh, they're doing worse than us, they're doing uh, ba badly, um, which is absolutely ridiculous. Every single government around the world has dealt with this, um, with this crisis terribly. 
Um, but I was wanted to I, I wanted to ask you as well because there's a lot of talk uh, around now about international aid and how different countries around the world are sending uh, help, whether it's equipment or even uh, doctors to uh, India right now. And I was I was wondering what what do you do you think is this is the solution? Is this the problem? Uh, and like is is international aid what's going to what's going to save india well what is going to save india will require more than simple palliatives especially because this is not just an indian problem it's a global crisis and out of control outbreaks like the one we are witnessing in india now pose a threat to the entire world's population it is true we are seeing moves from various countries now around the world to send medical help and equipment to india I think a big fa- factor behind this is for capitalist politicians to show that they are doing something in the face of this catastrophe. This is typically illustrated with the sending of relief from the Pakistani state, which has a long history of antagonism with the Indian state, who was forced to shift gear on the basis of the genuine feelings of solidarity expressed by the people and workers of Pakistan with what's happening to their brothers and sisters on the uh, other side of the border. And of course, considering how critical the situation is on the ground in India, this delivery of aid is welcome. But we have to point out that from the point of view of all these governments, such moves are going hand in hand with structural policies and the defense of a system that contributes to prolong the, the, uh, the agony of the Indian masses and to stall a genuine cooperation and a universally coordinated vaccination rollout. So the hypocrisy here has to be made clear. I mean, not not so long ago, the Biden administration, following the footsteps of Trump's America first policy, had still an embargo in place on the export of crucial raw material needed to ramp up vaccine production uh, internationally. And I think if these governments were genuinely motivated by doing everything they can to end the crisis in India, they would start by lifting the patents and make the COVID-19 vaccines accessible to all without any restrictions nor delay. Also, the Western powers would stop papering over the crimes of Modi's reactionary regime for geopolitical reasons, in particular the strengthening of a bulwark against China in the Indo-Pacific region. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that it's uh, everyone has been like, you know, suffering from lack of equipment um, and from like just a bad handling of it because of the fact that every single country around the world has been kind of going against the healthcare system uh, uh, locally and it's just it's just a ridiculous kind of show uh, like you said um so I was I was wondering because we were talking about India uh, recently on world to win actually I think it was episode 24 um, but we were talking about something completely different we were talking about the mass farmers movement and also the gen- the mass general strikes that were happening at the time and I was wondering can you give us a little bit update on that how is it playing out um, in the context of this like mass uh, wave uh, in COVID, uh, in, in COVID uh, cases, but also is the anger uh, about the government as it kind of moved aside during the COVID crisis or is it just intensifying now? Well, in- incredibly, the farmers' protest movement is still ongoing, even though in increasingly difficult conditions. At the moment, there are still thousands of farmers continuing the protest on the outskirts of, of Delhi. They say they will not budge until the government concedes to their demands and that Modi's corporate farm laws are a bigger threat to them than Corona. It has to be said also that unlike in the BJP electoral rallies, 
uh, farmers have taken health safety seriously, you know, distributing face masks and spraying disinfectants, setting up hand washing stations at their protests, etc. They are also playing a, a quite remarkable role in helping thousands of people in distress, you know, providing food packets to help patients in Delhi hospitals, uh, offering uh, migrant workers free food and shelters uh, on their protest site and so on. You know, the type of generosity and solidarity which starkly contrasts with the callousness of the capitalist uh, state. However, uh, the numbers mobilized seem to be declining somewhat. And there is, of course, a danger that this movement could be cut across by the scale of the pandemic. Recently, the establishment has renewed its pressure on the farmers to end their movements and go back home, arguably because of COVID. So it's not impossible that they would be, you know, preparing the grounds to crack down on the protests, using the pandemic as an excuse to, uh, to do so. But, you know, I would certainly not underestimate the deep level of anger that exists among the farmers. And, you know, I wouldn't underestimate either how much fresh rage against Modi and his government has been stored up by the huge amount of completely avoidable suffering, misery and death that is now unfolding across India. I mean, you just have to look on Twitter, where hundreds of thousands of people are literally lashing out at Modi and the BJP. Some of the most trending tweets include Modi resign, resign Modi, super spreader Modi, Modi made disaster, Modi fails India, etc., etc. And that is just the tip of the iceberg uh, uh, as far as the, you know, the mood uh, among the population is concerned. During last year's wave, uh, you know, there was a, a certain benefit of the doubt given to the government. Modi and the ruling party's popularity managed to come out relatively spared. But we can be absolutely sure that even though in the immediate term, the dynamic of struggles in society is likely to be pushed back significantly because of the scale of the health crisis. The political backlash this time is going to be very serious. The very poor uh, showing of the BJP, uh, for example, in the recent regional elections in the states of Kerala, Tamil Nadu, and most especially in West Bengal, is a small indication of that. Although these elections are not fully reflective because they took place mostly before the COVID storm really you know, fully took shape. But it's evident that there is widespread anger boiling at Modi, at the BJP, and at the ruling class more generally. Also because of the, the renewed tsunami of economic pain that is being inflicted on the working class, on the poor, on migrants, uh, on uh, farmers, etc., in the context of this new uh, COVID wave. And the government knows this as well. I mean, and he's very wary of it. And that's why, you know, there is now an increasing wave of state repression and intimidation against voices that are critical of the government's management of the crisis, such as what we have seen with the official request made by the government to social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter to block or delete posts critical of the government, or the threats made by the chief minister of the state of Uttar Pradesh to arrest people who spread supposed rumors that there is any shortage of oxygen in his state, or uh, the campaign by right-wing Hindu nationalists aimed at stopping people publishing pictures and footages of mass funeral pyres, pretexting the need to respect the dignity of the death. I mean, all of these moves in reality betray the fear of the ruling, uh, you know, corrupt charlatans of the BJP, that their lies uh, and, the, you know, their bankrupt policies are getting, getting increasingly exposed and could galvanize mass opposition to their rule. And I think, you know, faced with a situation like this, the BJP is a party that will surely resort to renewed nationalism, jingoism, caste and religious bigotry, uh, gender and other divisions and violence to try and get its way. So it has to be stopped uh, by building a powerful, organized, unifying movement based on the real needs of the working class, the poor and the oppressed of this country. 
Thank you so much, JJ. I think this is really important for us to hear about generally because I think there's so much in the media, like in the mainstream media about this. Um, but there's never an analysis of what can actually be done to get out of this crisis. And I think it's also, there's always the, these loads of question marks that uh, the media is uh, is raising. Like, how did they get there? What happened? But I think they're very... <laughs> very obvious material reasons of what this why this crisis is like this which i think you explain really really well so i want to say thank you so much for uh coming on the show today hopefully see you again and obviously keep safe in india um uh, jj thank you so much thank you yara Thank you so much, Andre, and thank you, JJ, as well. Uh, this has been really interesting and also educational. I think all of us are hearing so much about Brazil, hearing so much about India, and also wanting to get out of this crisis in our own countries and seeing those massive problems and issues with the countries in the global south, and especially Brazil and India, that are like one of the biggest countries uh, in the global south, is just really important for workers all around the world to know what's happening and I think um, also have this perspective and analysis about it and I think this was done really really well today. Now we are at our favorite part of uh, the episode which is the shout out of the week and this week we want to give a massive shout out to the Solidarity Against Repression in China and Hong Kong campaign that we've launched in the International Socialist Alternative a few weeks ago. So we have a little short video from our members there. So let's watch it now and then come back to me. On May 31st, a new political show trial will begin in Hong Kong. 47 pro-democracy politicians and activists will stand trial accused of violating the national security law. Most of them are already imprisoned awaiting trial. They will refuse bails some of serving sentences for other alleged political crimes such as unlawful assembly. The national security law is a far-reaching law to effectively criminalize political opposition to the dictatorship in Beijing. It was imposed by China one year ago. The 47 defendants are accused of subversion for which the maximum penalty is life imprisonment. Among them is long hair, Luan Kuo Hong, who was the only left politicians in the old elected legislative council. Solidarity Against Repression in China and Hong Kong, an international socialist alternative, demand the release of Long Hair and the other's defendants. We appeal to you to organize solidarity protests around the world on 31st of May. Help to send a signal on that day. Your solidarity can encourage the oppressed in China and Hong Kong. This trial is not about national security, but about the dictatorship wanting to destroy all oppositions to its rule. The CCP, China's dictatorship, is not a communist party. It is a capitalist state, run by billionaires who despise and fear the low-end population, or the Dun Renko in Chinese. The CCP fears the mass struggle, like we saw in Hong Kong in 2019, can spread to China and destabilize the regime. In Hong Kong, the mass democracy protests of 2019 saw over 2 million joining peaceful demonstrations. Their five demands called for elections based on one person, one vote, 
and an end to police violence. The CCP says the protests were terrorism. The truth is that the dictatorship can't allow anything like free elections to be held in Hong Kong. This would threaten the dictatorship's rules because this example could inspire even bigger mass protests for democratic rights in China. Many of the Hong Kong pro-democracy parties, which are, which are now facing harsh repressions, believe that they could negotiate a compromise with the CCP. These parties did not lead or organize the 2019 protests. It was a spontaneous movement. Unfortunately, the mass struggles did not find a way to spread to China, and a movement in just one city is not enough to succeed. Still, the CCP wants to make an example of Hong Kong's pan-democratic politicians to spread white terror. The dictatorship believes it can crush the democracy struggles in Hong Kong and extend its rules in China. We don't think so. Please support our campaign and join our Worldwide Day of Solidarity on May 31st. We are Solidarity Against Repression in China and Hong Kong. You can contact us here via our email or on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you, everyone. This was so inspirational, I think, generally, this episode. But obviously, the campaign from China and Hong Kong always uh, gives the best inspiration for everyone around the world. And thank you, everyone, for watching uh, episode 41 of Well to Win. So don't forget that you can also listen to all of our episodes in a podcast form uh, and on, on all big platforms. We have Spotify, iTunes, Google uh, Podcasts and basically everywhere. So either search for Well to Win or there will be a link in the description box. And of course, make sure to subscribe to our channel and also click the bell button so you're notified whenever we upload a new video or whenever we go live. There's a lot of uh, interesting stuff coming your way. And that being said, thank you all for being here today and see you next week, same time, same place. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity!